Hey there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 304 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. We're coming to you on Tuesday morning. The college basketball season is over, and, and it ended in uh, somewhat surprising fashion. I guess very surprising fashion. We're going to get into that. We're going to be talking about a major coaching change uh, coming, uh, you know, that just happened at North Carolina. We, you know, the implications of that and, and all kinds of other good stuff. Um, I am Jason Evans. I am joined, as always, this morning by Sam Klein and Donald Wine. Donald, I'll go to you first. You are in a different place than usual today. Yes, I'm actually right now located a couple of miles away from Sam. Uh, I am not at Sam's apartment. Uh, I am in a hotel on my way to Maine in New Hampshire for the week for a vacation. So apologies if I sound a little bit off uh, compared to normal because I could not travel with the new mic that has been debuted on this podcast in, the, in recent weeks. You, you sound fine, my friend. And, and getting out and about and, and doing things is a great thing for, for the fully vaccinated like you are. Uh, Sam Klein, Sam in Boston. Um, did you watch that game last night? I certainly did. And I actually, I'll, I'll admit, because it was on rather late for me, I, I, folks may have picked up over the years. I'm, I like going to bed early and I like waking up early, which is why sometimes we record early, much to uh, the chagrin, I think, mostly of Jason, who is, is more of a night owl than I am. <laughs> I actually quit before the game was over. I went to bed. I said, like, <laughs> nothing interesting is happening in this game. Gonzaga at halftime, I thought was was about to start threatening and then they came out in the second half and and Baylor took control right again I I told you before the game that I thought Gonzaga was was the better team and that they were going to win and that and that you should just be picking them all the way through and I was wrong so I, I will also mention that last night I got to go to Fenway Park for the first time uh, the Sox were in town for one night while I was uh, around here for vacation so I said let's do it and in my mind if all of you out there know, Red Sox games usually take about five to six hours all the time. doesn't matter who they're playing. If it's the Yankees, just add two more hours to that, right? So I walked into this game fully expecting to have to miss the national championship game. It was one of the quickest Red Sox games ever. It was on ESPN. It was done by 10. So I was able to catch like a little bit of the end of the first half and then the entire second half at a bar right outside of Fenway. But you missed, Donald, all the drama. I did, yes. Because <laughs> it you all mean tip, it you mean tip over in the first five minutes. <laughs> tip off, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, guys, let's let's get to the game and talk about it a little bit. Um, because it, even though Duke wasn't there, really significant event. The the end of the college basketball season and and the Baylor Bears uh, it end up as national champs. They beat Gonzaga eighty six to seventy. It was it was a thorough beatdown. There's no way to say it other than that. Gonzaga came in as about a four, four and a half point favorite into this game. Sam mentioned that he was picking them. I think most of the known universe was picking them. I want to be on the record as stating, and you guys know it because I put it in our group chat, after the national semifinals, after the way Baylor looked utterly destroying Houston, I said, I'm putting all my money on Baylor. I thought that Baylor was going to win this game. I, I realized that Gonzaga had not, they just hadn't had a very difficult route. They hadn't played a top four seed the whole way to get to the finals. Um, and and I, I felt like they were ripe for the picking. And Baylor picked the heck out of them. <laughs> they uh, sicked him, if you will. Yeah, it was a very, very impressive win. Let, let's, let's each go through. We don't need to go too long, too much in depth, but let's each go through the things that we saw that, that we thought were most interesting. And Donald, I'll, I'll start with you, um, uh, you know, and your perspective, obviously, is going to be mostly what they did in the second half to hold on to that lead. 
Yeah, well, I mean, let's let's first go back to December. These two teams were going to meet in December in Indianapolis, but because Gonzaga had a couple of COVID cases, Marion County Health Officials, which is the county that Indianapolis sits, said, absolutely not, this game will not be played. So I, I think for Gonzaga, they said, hey, we have a tough schedule. You know, we're looking forward to playing the best teams. But it, it sounds like this was circled on Baylor's calendar. This was this team, this, this matchup, they wanted it badly. And they came out and they showed what they probably were going to try and do to them in December, but it was for a national championship. So even in the second half, uh, Sam, you said it was kind of a boring affair. And it was in the sense that, they, you know, Gonzaga never really got close. Like Baylor was always had the upper hand throughout the entirety of the second half. And even that for a little bit of the first half that I saw, they were dominant on all sides of the basketball. They made sure anytime Gonzaga got any sort of momentum, they stifled that very quickly and they did what they need to do to really just make this game a walking away affair for a national championship. The thing that stood out to me most about Baylor and, and made me glad that we never had to play them this year, because I, I think Duke would have gotten just absolutely mauled by Baylor is the offensive rebounding, right? The Baylor's ability to like, do you guys remember when the, I, I love talking about the 2010 Duke team. It's my, I, I always go back to them, but the 2010 Duke team had a, had a way of, you know, taking long shots and then when those long shots missed, they were basically just passes down low to Brian Zubek and to Lance Thomas, who would either put them back up for, for you know, garbage buckets or throw them back out for more three-pointers. That's exactly what Baylor did last night. I mean, they hit 43% of their threes, but it felt like they were making 60% of their threes because every three-pointer was either a made three-pointer or a pass to the interior. And, and it's very hard to stop a team that does those two things really well. And, and that's exactly what Gonzaga went up against. They weren't able to handle Baylor on the boards and, and Baylor pulled down 16 offensive rebounds. Gonzaga only pulled down 17 defensive rebounds. It was basically a 50-50 matchup when the ball uh, entered the cylinder or, or the cylinder area when Baylor was on offense. I, I'm so glad you brought that up. And, and that means that the first player whose name we're going to mention is Mark Vital. And I'm going to talk about Mark Vital for a second because... How vital he was, was he last night? Yeah, he was the guy controlling those offensive boards for Baylor. He had eight offensive rebounds in this contest. And folks, Mark Vital is only six foot five. Like, now, granted, he's six foot five, 250. He's built a little bit like Charles Barkley. He's a thick six foot five. He, <laughs> look, he looked like Charles Barkley. Like, I mean, throughout the season, he yeah. even Charles has alluded to the fact that, yo, this guy kind of plays like me and he takes, he has a style, similar style to him. And so it was fun to see as someone who was a big Charles Barkley fan growing up. But I mean, he was as great as the Baylor guards are. And I'm going to get to them in one second. Mark Vidal was true to his name, absolutely vital to what they, what they succeeded at because Gonzaga is way bigger than way bigger than Baylor. Um, and Gonzaga just couldn't do anything with him. He had, he had the nose for the ball that is just an essential part of a, of a great rebounder. And it, and it was, I, I was thrilled to see him having that kind of a role because he's not, you know, the big high profile kind of player that's Macy Oteague and Jared Butler and, and especially, especially Davion Mitchell, who are the stars for Baylor. And, and, and by the way, they were incredible. And, and I want to, you know, let's, let's get a little Duke ankle on this. The reason I liked Baylor was because Baylor had the best point guard. Davion Mitchell, who is who who plays point guard the most for them, um, is in my opinion, after watching this NCAA tournament, the best point guard in America. 
absolutely impossible to stay in front of, does an incredible job of getting in the lane and then creating opportunities for other players or finishing himself. But the cool thing about Baylor is they've essentially got three point guards on the floor at all time because Butler and Teague are also point guards. They're also capable of creating and passing, uh, and, you know, and, and getting in the lane and scoring. They aren't necessarily, you know, huge guys, but they, they, they use their length really well. And the connection to Duke is, I think, one of the keys for this Duke team this season, one of the reasons we struggled, and the key for next year is going to be, do we get better point guard play? Uh, it, I, I, I absolutely saw last night that point guard's the most important position in college basketball. I've thought that for a while, and, and I think it was borne out by last night's game. Because Gonzaga, by the way, is playing two point guards at the same time. Baylor's playing three point guards at the same time. And they're all really Andrew Nemhart and, and Jalen Suggs for, for Gonzaga. All five of those guys are really great point guards. And I think they are the engines that are driving their teams. And, uh, you know, and they drove their teams to the final game. If we want to take this back to one of our most recent episodes on the Trevor Keels commitment, the discussion of Keels, Roach, and Wendell Moore as the, the three guards on, on the team next year for Duke, that is exactly where you look for whether Duke is going to be good or great next season is, is do when do two of Wendell Moore, Jeremy Roach and, and Trevor Keels have the ability to initiate the offense. We've saw glimpses of that from both Moore and Roach this past season. I think we're going to see some playmaking ability from Keels next season, but it, that is going to be, I think the difference between, because we know that like, it's funny to say this, but like, we know that down low Duke is going to be good because they've got, Mark Williams and then Paulo Bancaro, who who by all accounts is going to be a stud next year in his freshman season. But the the backcourt is going to be the question. And, and Jason, I think it's a it's a great point that you look at the two teams that ended up being far and away the two best in college basketball this year. What did they have? Great guard play. Yes, Sam, you're absolutely right. It was the great guard play. And and then the other thing I want to mention from that game before we wrap up with it is I was incredibly impressed with Baylor's defense. All season long, we have seen this Gonzaga juggernaut that no one could stop. And, and for Baylor to get to hold them to 70 points um, was, was really impressive. Baylor was able to, to switch one through five. You know, we talked about Mark Vidal, um, his ability to switch any position, guard big men, guard guards, he didn't care, uh, was, was essential to that defense. And I was just so impressed with Baylor's de defensive intensity and, and their ability to frustrate a Gonzaga team that has not been frustrated at all all year long uh it was it was a masterful performance by scott drew's team uh, and and it was a joy you know a lot of people say oh it was kind of a dud final four because we didn't have an exciting or a dud championship game we didn't have an exciting game i i saw a beautiful beautiful executed game by a really great team and i thought that was exciting and fun donald la last word yeah for baylor you mentioned the defense and i'm glad you did because if you flash back to a couple of days ago they absolutely pounded Houston and Houston was a team that was a high flying, high scoring team. And it got to a point where Houston just could not, they had one guy who could put the ball in the basket. Everyone else was very much neutralized and Baylor's defense was incredible in that regard. I'm glad that that carried over to Monday and they had a game plan. And I'm sure it was one that they had been tinkering throughout the tournament in the hopes that they would meet. Because again, we talked about, I was, I think I was the only guy last weekend who for the final four predicted that Gonzaga would not win. I said that it would be Houston or mid that's beside the point. But my point is, is that with Baylor, their defense really shown throughout this final four and people don't like defense in the final four. They like to see offense. They like to see the big moments like Jalen Suggs had in the national semifinal. 
but defense is what wins championships and defense from Baylor is what showed up at the right moment. And the last takeaway, last thing I want to mention in the post game, Charles Barkley and Kenny Smith uh, and, and say what you will about them and, and their analysis. I think they're fun to listen to. Uh, Charles Barkley said, Hey, uh, Baylor has a weight room and everyone on the team knows where it is. I mean, <laughs> which was a, a great comment. Um, but, you know, again, as we tie this back to Duke, I hope everyone on Duke knows where the weight room is because, man, the, the Baylor, those guys were, they were sculpted. <laughs> Coach Will, Coach Will, get on it this summer. Amen. There you go. Hey, guys, we're going to take a quick break after talking about the national championship game and look ahead to the future, specifically just a little bit down the road. North Carolina has a new coach. So, gentlemen, uh, we are back and we are going to talk about what's happening uh, down in Chapel Hill, where they have named Hubert Davis as the new coach of the North Carolina Tar Heels. Uh, Hubert, obviously a longtime assistant, a decade on the bench next to Roy Williams. And if you have a, a bit of a long memory, you will recall that Hubert Davis was a, a star player for North Carolina back in the day, back in the 90s. And we need to talk a little bit about the coaching search because, look, this is something, A, North Carolina matters to Duke fans, and B, uh, at some point, hopefully not too soon, but at some point, Duke will be going through the same thing, replacing a legendary coach and deciding, do we, do we stay in the family? Do we, you know, look far and wide? North Carolina, it appears, stayed in the family. And in fact, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll claim credit for this. I said when we were talking about Roy Williams last week that I thought Carolina probably already had a replacement in mind and that it could be named as early as the first half of the next week, which I was right about. They named him on Monday. It was only four days from Roy Williams retiring to them naming Hubert Davis. And by all accounts, they interviewed nothing but members of the Carolina family. Um, so they, they chose not to look at anyone else. Sam, do you... I did see that, actually, that, that they initiated discussion with Jay Wright, but that he turned it down pretty quickly. So they sort of started the process. But but I think, Jason, to your point, the way that coaching searches go these days, programs are incentivized to have as little time as possible between the first coach leaving, be it retirement, taking another job, whatever, and getting to the next coach. And that is naturally, I think, going to lead to programs opting for guys they already know, which tells you that there's that there may actually be an advantage to programs being able to get out ahead of these things. So the the interesting thing to me is that Roy basically says he realized at the end of the season that it was over. And even like let's say we we go back a month ago when Carolina is is struggling, you know, we we talked about leading into the the final Duke UNC game that UNC was probably in the tournament, Duke was probably out of the tournament, but that UNC was not like guaranteed that they were going to make it. They could lose to Duke, they could lose in the first round of the ACC tournament and have a much worse looking resume. And at that point, if Roy Williams is thinking, you know, this might not go well, I I, I think this might be it for me, then he can alert you know, the, the powers that be the Bubba Cunningham and, and whoever else at UNC is sort of part of the decision-making process and they can at least initiate the conversation. I think the outcome, if you're, if you're doing a quick turnaround like this in a situation where there's lots of turnover and, and there's lots of transfers and, and you got to recruit guys to get back on the team, the easiest thing to do, I think is, is to do exactly what they did, which is promote Hubert Davis. So 
the question is, was, was that a good promotion? Was that a smart thing to do? Donald, do you think it was a good hire? I do. And, you know, on the last show, when we talked about Roy retiring and we talked about some of the candidates, I mentioned that Hubert Davis was in line for this because this was his dream job. He left ESPN with, you said it was a decade ago. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago uh, that he was on college game day. He left because this was his dream. He wanted to be in a position to get his dream job and he got it. And, you know, you mentioned some of the ramifications of like having a black coach in one of these top positions. We have one in, in UNC. So uh, honestly, like, I'm, I'm happy for him that he's able to live out his dream and get his dream job. Not many people get to do that. So uh, when it comes to the actual hire, I do think it was a good hire for a lot of things that Sam mentioned, you know, continuity. And, and I is pretty sure that the reason when we started hearing the rumors about Roy retiring, that was when the interviews really started, or at least the reaching out and the contact and the feeling out process of who would be able to come in. Hubert was ready to go. He was right there. And the continuity of the program continues from Roy to Hubert very easily. So I, I think it's a great hire. Donald, I'll, I'll come back and counter and say, I don't know that I, that this is a, fully how I feel, but I think there's a strong counter argument that promoting Hubert Davis into this role is actually exactly what Carolina should not have been doing, given that the last couple of years have been tough on the UNC program. And Roy admitted in his, in his outgoing press conference where he was very emotional, he said that he had kind of lost the thread on this season and on college basketball as a whole, and that he didn't feel like he was up to the task anymore. And that's why he was retiring. You know, he, he still he still loves his players. He still loves the program. He still wants all of it to be successful, but the, he didn't have the chops anymore. And what did he do? What did the program do? They promoted the person probably like within the circle of people who are most likely to get this job. I think we, we talked about six or seven guys that are UNC alums in some way or connected to the program that we thought were likely to get interviewed. They promoted the guy who is least likely to make any changes because Hubert Davis has not been a head coach. He has only coached under Roy Williams, he obviously spent a long time sort of away from Carolina. He was in the NBA for a long time. You know, he was a, successful in that he had a long NBA career. And then he was an analyst where he got to be looking at lots of programs for a long time during the you know first part of the 2000s before returning to Chapel Hill as an assistant coach. But he is only his only coaching experience is sitting next to Roy Williams on the bench. And so I if I'm a Carolina fan, I'm worried that Hubert Davis doesn't bring enough of an other perspective to make the kinds of changes that he might need to make to, to catch up to college basketball. I don't think UNC is like behind so far that, that they couldn't recover. They won a national championship just a few years ago, more recently than Duke has, and they have brought in top players and, and they have, you know, been, been competitive in the ACC and been competitive nationally, but not quite at the level I think that Roy Williams was early in his UNC tenure. And so I'd be worried as a Carolina fan that Hubert Davis isn't going to adjust the way that you need to adjust and pivot in today's college basketball. Well, and I'll, I'll go a step further and I'll say this. Uh, so I think this was a good short-term and potentially bad long-term decision by UNC. And, and here's why the good short-term is we talked about this on the podcast. There, there were, there's been all kinds of talk that Carolina was about to have the roster absolutely decimated that Armando Baycott was going to leave, that, uh, you know, Dayron Sharp's already left for the NBA, um, that we were going to, to see Caleb Love potentially leave, um, and, and potentially even more guys than that, and, and that Carolina was going to be in a complete rebuild mode, just as Roy Williams was leaving. 
and and the consensus out there is that the players on the team like the fact that Hubert Davis was hired as coach, that Caleb Love has decided to come back because of Hubert Davis, and that Armando Baycott will probably decide to come back. And in fact, there's lots of talk that Garrison Brooks is going to take a fifth year um, and, and play at Carolina because of COVID. He's allowed an extra year. And so the Carolina roster will be, you know, will, will maintain because of the continuity and because they like Hubert Davis. So that's the good short term for Carolina. If you, if you assume that having those guys is a good thing for the program, I'm not sure it's a good long-term move because one place where Carolina has really struggled over the past half decade or so, especially as they've been dealing with the scandal that, that happened for a while that they never got punished for. Um, and, and as their reputation, you know, as a destination for NBA type players has, has taken a hit uh, because Roy Williams, doesn't seem to produce NBA players, you know, certainly not the same rate coach K and some of the other rival coaches. So their reputation is taking a little bit of a hit and their recruiting has really suffered. Hubert Davis was not their best recruiting assistant, not even close. In fact, guys, can you all name all the top 25 recruits that Hubert Davis, there's no way you're gonna be able to do this. I did the research on it. Hubert Davis has been the lead on exactly two top 25 recruits in North Carolina history, the lead recruiting assistant, Armando Baycott and Tony Bradley. Those are the, and neither one of those guys, by the way, were even a top 20 recruit. All the really top tier recruits that Carolina has gotten over the years, Caleb Love, for example, Dayron Sharp, you know, we can go back. Steve Robinson on the Carolina staff was the guy who took the primary responsibility for recruiting those players. It, it, was, it was not Hubert Davis. Hubert Davis, in fact, took sort of a very secondary even third tier role among the Carolina assistants when it came to recruiting. He is going to need to step up as a recruiter in a big, big way. And there are people out there who have compared his hiring to like if Duke hired John Shire when Coach K steps down. I think they're very, very different because John Shire has been perhaps the best recruiting assistant in all of college basketball for the past decade since he came into the job. You can go down a list. I mean, John Shire was the lead assistant uh, first of all, he's the lead, just, just right now, he was the lead assistant recruiting Paolo Banchero, A.J. Griffin, and Trevor Keels. He was the lead assistant who brought in Jalen Johnson. I mean, I can go on and on. He was the guy who brought in D.J. Stewart, Mark Williams, Vernon Carey, Matthew Hurt. He was the lead Duke recruiter on Cam Reddish and Zion Williamson. Uh, he was the lead assistant on Jason Tatum. I can, I can just keep on going and going and going. Hubert Davis does not have that. As, as part of his profile. And that's one of the reasons I'm, con, you know, if I'm a Carolina fan, I'm concerned that while they may have made a good short-term move to hold what they had together, I'm not sure this guy can sell the program in a way that's going to bring in top-tier recruits moving forward. Well, the answer to that is what he does with the assistants. Um, you know, and I go to Michigan as an example. Juwan Howard, you know, when he got hired, had no coaching experience. He was an assistant coach in the NBA for a couple of years, but he didn't have any head coaching experience. He didn't have any in college, but Michigan wanted to have a Michigan man run Michigan. That's one of the big mantras of the university. So they went and got Juwan Howard, but what Juwan Howard did is he went and got Phil Martelli, who was a longtime coach, as you guys know, at St. Joe's. He Great got coach. that experience yeah. on the bench because he knew that he did not have the experience and he needed that experience in recruiting and how to run a program and, and bringing in some outside perspectives to kind of fundamentally 
keep Michigan the way it is, but still change it to reflect the times. That's what I'm looking for Hubert Davis to do. Uh, if I'm a Carolina fan, I want him to bring in someone that has that experience who can then lead under him and say, Hey, uh, you know, a guy that can take advantage of recruiting a guy who can kind of sell, like bring Hubert towards the 2020s, that sort of thing. So any coach in coach K is no different. Any coach is not a great coach without great assistance. We have been lucky as Duke to have great assistants that came back that were part of the program that have come back and really been, as you, as you mentioned, Jason, very good at recruiting or very good in other aspects of, a pro, of running a program, which is why they get jobs. Hubert Davis has to come. And if he doesn't have the experience in the area, he needs to be humble and bring in that experience so that he can create a full, full well-rounded program. But that's what I'm looking at. If I'm a Carolina fan, that's what I'm looking to see them do. If you want to make this more Duke centric and, and have UNC be worried about what's going on down the road at Duke, where, you know, I don't think the postseason success is as great, but the recruiting has been better. One of the things that I think has helped Duke immensely in recruiting the last few years is the, the rebranding around the brotherhood and, and how much they've emphasized that Carolina has actually had, you could say that they've had a brand around what they call the Carolina family, I think a lot longer than, than Duke has had the brotherhood. I think the brotherhood is an invention of the last like 10 years or so. And, and yeah, mostly, coincides, mostly coincides with, with the one and done era, even though I, I think that at all these programs that have had longtime coaches, that through line where they have the same coach for, for decades really persists and, and helps build the, the kind of family aspect of the thing. Caroline has been emphasizing it for a lot longer than Duke has, but the strength of that brand as it pertains to getting high schoolers to buy into it has not been as strong as Duke's has. And I can see, and like I, I was seeing the social media reaction yesterday to Hubert Davis. And one of the things that popped out to me is Carolina alumni in the NBA, coaches elsewhere, whatever, all being really excited for Hubert Davis. And so I think that there's there's an effort by them to sort of build a lot of groundswell among Carolina alums to get more guys into the into the family, as they say. So I think that, that there's an element of this that is them looking at Duke down the road and saying, how have they built the recruiting machine? They've done it through the hype of the alums and, and the guys who are in the program. And I think Hubert Davis is likely expected to be a steward of that as opposed to an innovator who's going to rebuild from the ground up. One of the interesting other aspects of this to look at is we remember when Dean Smith retired that they basically just installed Bill Guthridge as, as his replacement. Now, kind of different where Bill Guthridge was also sort of at the end of his career where Hubert Davis is, is just getting started. But you can see an, an echo of that. And Guthridge obviously didn't last very long, but he was very successful, brought the team to two final fours before he decided to retire. I could see Hubert Davis having, like Jason was saying, a really good immediate impact on, on the program and on the brand. Yeah, no, this is not a, a Bill Guthridge situation. By the way, just uh, so you guys know, and, and I'm not I'm not 100% certain about this. I'd need to do some research on it. I hadn't prepared my Bill Guthridge notes. <laughs> but, but the rumor is, the talk is that Bill Guthridge was always expected to only be there for three years, that that was how uh, it, it was a pension play, so to speak, that they knew they could give him a big raise as head coach and that if you had a salary for three years in a row, the state pension system, you know, would really would would match that or, or come close to matching it once you retired. And so Bill Guthridge how different was, is 
how yeah. different is is the pay in college basketball now that that like in in my lifetime they were talking about pension plans for college basketball coaches <laughs> no but seriously one of the reasons bill guthridge was given the job was so he could get a big raise and so he could then retire with a nice pension um because if he'd retired on his assistant coach pension it would not have been nearly the same and the presumption was that after those three years uh, uh, Roy Williams would step in and become the full-time uh, head coach. And then Roy didn't, and they went to Matt Doherty and blah, 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 blah. I, I, I think at least it looks like Carolina has avoided that kind of fiasco. I think Hubert Davis was the man they wanted for this job. And, uh, I, you know, time will tell. I'm, I'm, I'm not ready to, to dump on it as a terrible choice. He may turn out to be a great recruiter. I think he's a smart guy who knows basketball and, um, you know, it, Carolina's reputation, it will probably keep them at the top no matter what. He looks good in glasses. I know that much. <laughs> and, and you know what? I look forward to beating him. That's right. Many, many times. So, gentlemen, with the college basketball season over, everyone has begun to turn their attention to the 2021-2022 season. And the, the way we do that is we, we look at preseason polls. Now, it is really, really early. It is way early, but it is nice to see. I, I've, I've perused a number of them. It is nice to see that the Duke Blue Devils do appear to be uh, back, not all of them, but most of the preseason polls have Duke back in the top 10, which is, <laughs> that's where we want to be. Hope, and there are, even, there are a number of them I've seen out there that have Duke uh, ranked, uh, you know, in the top five, around seven or eight or so. There's, there's you know, People still are still very unsure what this team is going to be next year. And look, the, the fact of the matter is, we've talked about it many times, the, the, there's tremendous roster turnover going on with transfers. There, there's still a number of recruits who have to decide. There are a number of NBA decisions that have to be made. I mean, whether or not Matthew Hurt comes back it has a huge impact on, on where this Duke team is going to fall. Uh, guys, have, have you all, you know, I'm, I'm sure you've looked at some of those preseason polls you know, do you feel like Duke's in the right place, Donald, or, or, you know, where would you have us right now? I, it's hard to tell, but you know, if, if a poll has us as at line nine or 10, I think that's fair. Um, only based on potential, but again, like you said, there's a lot of things that can change, not just with our team, but with other teams in this off season, Gonzaga could lose a lot of players. I know they're gaining a lot of, uh, incoming freshmen, but they could lose a lot of these guys. Baylor could have the same thing happen to them. So a lot of the teams that are theoretically ahead of us in the way too early polls could be losing a lot. This transfer portal situation is going to be one to watch because I think every single team Duke included will be active on it. We may not get guys from it, but just like coaching, you're going to, if you're going to have a coaching hire, you're going to at least call some guys. So there's going to be that sort of activity and that will, you know, I don't think there's going to be a transfer necessarily that can make or break a team but they could make a good team, a great team or a great team, an elite team with that, with some of the pieces in place. The ironic thing to me is that despite all the uncertainty around Duke's roster, Duke actually, I feel like is in more solid shape than most of the other top programs are at this point. As we talked about after the Trevor Keel's announcement and DJ Stewart's announcement that he was going to go pro, we kind of already know who Duke's top eight are next year. And that's a pretty good team. Right. The, the the pieces didn't quite fit together this past year for Duke, but I think there are enough pieces moving out and, and new things moving in that Duke should be really good, whether that means that they are top two or three or if they're nine or ten, I think remains to be seen. But we actually have a pretty good idea of Duke's roster for next season, unless they get a really high impact recruit. And I don't know 
that a high impact recruit is going to sign on for this team, given that we know who the top seven or eight are and, and that coach K based on, you know, his track record of using these guys is probably, it is probably like well-suited to run this team with, with a seven or eight man lineup. Right. I mean, if you think about it, like in the grand scheme of things, we're only waiting on Matthew Hurt. We know, we, we basically know the decision he's going to make, but as far as decisions go, that's the only one we're really waiting for. I mean, there's, well, wait, wait, wait. Uh, no, I'm talking Patrick about from the guys that I'm oh, okay. talking about from the guys that are on the team, not, not, not recruits and not transfers. So the guys on our team, we're only waiting on one guy where, like I said, Gonzaga, None of these guys have officially made a decision yet. Baylor, none of these guys have officially made a decision yet. UCLA has not made a lot of decisions yet. So the guys that teams that are already slated to be in that top three or four from next season, a lot of them are still need to wait to see what some of the guys currently on their team are going to do. Because I think right now that's what they're projecting. They're projecting some of them will stay and some of them will go. For us, no one's projecting Matthew Hurt to remain on this team next year, even though he hasn't officially announced that. So our projections feel like they're a little bit more solid right now. Everyone else's could change us, and that's how we could move up or down. Well, and, and you know, you mentioned UCLA. I just want to – so ESPN, Jeff Borzello uh, put out ESPN's way too early preseason top 25, and they have, they have uh, Gonzaga number one um, with the expectation that Gonzaga is going to lose several players from this team, but that they're going to bring – uh, you know, especially Drew Timmy, they're going to bring, you know, some really, really good players back and that they're going to land some very impressive recruits, including Chet Holmgren, the number one player in the class. And they think that Gonzaga will land Walker Kessler. But the thing I was going to say was they have UCLA number two, and I've seen UCLA very high in a lot of the polls. And, and look, if, you know, if Johnny Juzang comes back, UCLA is going to be very good, but like, it's almost like everyone's forgotten that this UCLA team almost didn't make the tournament. If UCLA had lost in overtime to Michigan State or just lost in regulation, they were down big to Michigan State in their play-in game. If they lose that game, which is not impossible, and, and it's not like that was a result that would have been shocking. It's not like you go, oh, UCLA's way better than Michigan State. They should never have been. If they lose that game, they're not even in anyone's preseason top 25. So, like, they got on one magical run for a week and a half, two weeks. They got hot, and suddenly everyone's like, oh, they're, they're preseason top five. It shows you sort of the the crazy vagaries of uh, of these preseason polls. That yeah, I but think- Jason, Jason, look at look at Duke, and I know it's not exactly the same, but Duke is coming off a season where they were basically a 500 team, and their second best play. If you say that DJ Stewart was the second best player on this team throughout the year, if you just ignore Jalen Johnson, Duke has already lost its second best player. It's likely going to lose its best player off this team that already was an average team. How good are they going to be next year? They get recruits and and whatever, but. But, uh, you know, the, the, the sample sizes are always small here in college basketball. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no. My, my point is, though, the, you would, the people who are rating Duke highly, and, and I happen to agree with them, a lot of that is based on the fact that Duke is expected, even though we lose a couple, you know, very, very useful, very valuable players, we're, we're bringing in, you know, especially Paulo Bancaro and, and A.J. Griffin, our difference-making kind of freshmen. Um, and, and we've seen in college basketball again and again, when you, when you have guys like that, especially when you combine them with some experienced players, which Duke will have, which is something we haven't had a lot lately, when, you know, when you do that kind of thing, that's a formula for success. To me, that's, to me, that's different than saying UCLA is going to be the same team they were last year. The, the, the people who are ranking UCLA high are not saying UCLA is bringing in a top five recruit top 10 recruit the way Duke is they're saying oh this team's all going to be back 
And, and what I'm saying is that team that's all going to be back, that maybe is all going to be back. That UCLA has one, UCLA has one uh, five-star recruit, and that's small forward Peyton Watson, who's ranked number 10th, number 10 in the class by 247, but, yeah. but is not on the level that Paulo Bancaro and AJ Griffin are. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and again, my, my only point about UCLA is, aside from a two-week run, great run, where they won three games in overtime, or they had three games go to overtime. Aside from that, from that run, this was a thoroughly mediocre UCLA team that almost, you know, came within a, you know, very close to missing the NCAA tournament. And suddenly people are saying that they're a top five team. That's my only point. Just, it seems a little, seems a little random to me. <laughs> so on that random note, we will wrap things up here on the Duke basketball report podcast, episode number 304 folks, make sure you keep looking for us in your feed. We're bringing the content to you coming tomorrow an exclusive interview with Duke's top recruit for next year, Paolo Bancaro. Um, you're going to love that. We have a lot to tell you about him, and we're going to bring you more and more content. More episodes of Return to Glory are coming this week as we look back on the 2001 team. But for Donald and Sam, I am Jason. We are wrapping things up here now. And Duke Band, play us out and take us home. So, so I was, you guys saw from our group messages that I was sending you messages at 2 a.m. last night. Yes. Um, Cause I needed to stay up late and then wake up late because I'm working uh, a late night at CNN. I'm working till 3 a.m. tonight at CNN. Oh geez. So you're I, going so, back to bed after this? No, 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 no. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. It's not a big deal. But I, I had, uh, so last night from like midnight until 2 a.m. Um, I had copious notes. I had all kinds of really, I came up with all kinds of interesting little things I wanted to talk about on this podcast, and I was feeling great. No. Went to bed, woke up this morning just a short time ago. My computer, for some reason, had gone into a automatic shutdown update mode or something like that. It's supposed to auto-recovery, and, and it didn't. It's all gone. Yep, it's all gone. So pissed. So pissed. Well, now I, I will say the process of, of writing it all down and taking all the notes, I've got most of it in my head now anyway, but just mm -hmm. it would have flowed much better. <laughs>